0: and today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about immigrants having to face the shelter system in New York City. Also going to be touching on the situation of lawfare being uh, directed against Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner of Argentina. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Amir Kafaji, an award-winning journalist based out of New York City, who you can follow on Twitter at Amir Kofage 91 Amir, thanks so much for joining
1: us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, the pleasure is all ours, Amir. And you've uh, recently reported for Documented NY about how migrants from uh, Latin America are finding their way to New York City and having to deal with a very complex shelter system that is less than sympathetic to them, to say the very least. Now, I actually recently saw a statistic that said that New York City already has something like 80,000 homeless people in it, which is uh, hard to even uh, uh, imagine. And so I was hoping you could help us understand, you know, how is it that uh, these migrants are making their way to New York and what are they experiencing when they get there?
1: Um, So my colleague, my colleague uh, documented, Julie and I, we were seeing, um, we were hearing stories from uh, social service organizations and uh, mutual aid organizations that migrants were being bussed from Texas and Washington, D.C., into New York City by the governor of uh, Texas. And this was happening, We so we kind of heard uh, rumblings of this way before it made national headlines. But then when Mayor Adams announced... Uh, he, I guess, he made it official that that's exactly what was happening. That the Texas governor, um, in response to the migrants, I guess they were, you know, there's uh, all these migrants coming through the uh, the Texas border. Um, he was going to shift a lot of that burden from Texas to the uh, northern Democrat states, right? Like in New York City Washington, D. C., um, and Washington uh, D.C. And it's kind of like to, uh, uh, to show to show like listen. you're lax on immigration where we have to bear the brunt of it. So we're going to, we're going to show you how it feels this kind of like passing the buck and, and and it's all political rhetoric, right? So they're using the migrants as kind of like a political pawn. The government of Texas is trying to prove some sick point that um, the border situation is, is out of control. And, and he wants to, Give it gives quote unquote a taste of it of uh New York's own medicine kind of attitude, which is that which is you know it's not necessarily true, right? So, um, that's what's going on at the border and and with Texas, and that's how many of these migrants are coming from um uh from Texas to New York City. Um, they're giving them one way tickets, many are forced onto these buses, and I've heard that there's even been like uh, armed guards uh, on these buses that are sending. Many of these uh, uh, who are coming into New York City, so it's it's kind of like a weird and absurd situation what's going on here. And uh, many are coming from Venezuela, uh, and they're seeking asylum. So when they come into New York, they're they're they don't but many don't even know where they're going. So when they finally do come to New York, they've been on these buses, so they've already been on this long journey through through from venezuela to mexico and now from texas to new york city they get this one-way ticket to new york they come here and they don't they don't have any family here they don't have any connections here in new york they don't they don't know why they are they are in new york but when they get here they have to deal with the complex um uh bureaucratic system that's the shelter system in new york that is barely functioning to help the homeless in this city and now they're realizing how how um uh complex and how absurd the, the homeless shelter system is in new york
0: definitely and so what kind of support if any is there for uh, migrants who uh, make their way to new york city
1: so the city has established um some sort of like a welcome center at the port authority bus terminal in new york um interestingly enough the Port Authority does not want journalists inside the, the port Authority as the migrants are coming in um, but what they do is they, they take their, their information they give them um, a resource packet they give them um, toiletries clothing and that's pretty much it migrants are then on the on their own have to, f- have to figure out how to get to some, some of these intake centers and some of these homeless shelters that the city had directed them to. Many don't have much much money in their pocket. Many don't know how the city works, how the subway works, how 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 to get to from point A to point B. So they have to figure this out on their own. Mutual aid organizations have been filling in the gap, such as the South Bronx Mutual Aid Organization, um, where they're actually they're. they're buying cabs for many of these migrants to go to these homeless shelters. They're, They're providing them, providing them places to stay in the meantime, as they figure out what their next move is, they're helping them with their paperwork, but the city itself is really not doing everything they could to help these migrants. They haven't established, although they promised to establish an intake center, a centralized intake center that specifically deals with the needs of the migrants coming from Texas, um, but that hasn't been set up yet and the city won't answer when and where that will happen. So they've kind of have to, they're kind of being forced into this chaotic and um, violent shelter system. And they're kind of, uh, on, and they have to navigate that on their own. And then many of these migrants, uh, in, uh homeless shelters don't have, uh, Spanish translators. They don't have, um, uh, anybody that would be uh, sympathetic to their specific needs. Um, because they're, they're, you know, they, they're not the general homeless population in New York, right. right, There's almost like 8,000 migrants coming into New York and they need some sort of, um, help that would, that would be specific to what's going on, but that's not happening at all. And it's uh, many of them saying that they have to sleep on the streets. Um, families because they don't have the proper paperwork are being separated um uh people who are in domestic partnerships because they're not married are not allowed to stay together so some are choosing to just stay on uh, sleep on sidewalks rather than going to these shelters others have gone into these shelters and saw how violent they are and have rather sleep on the streets and you got to remember these are migrants that travel from venezuela to Mexico, the, 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 the danger that they must have seen on that trip, sometimes three months journey. And yet when they come into the New York City shelter system, they rather sleep on the sidewalk. And that's indicative of how bad the situation is in New York.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, and that's what I've been thinking J- just in reading about this and hearing you describe it, Amir. I mean, you leave your country of origin to travel to um, Mexico, which, you know, it's been documented just how perilous that is. I actually don't think a lot of people in the United States recognize just how incredibly dangerous even that trip is. You're able to make your way to, say, Texas, where a racist governor sticks you on a bus and you don't even know where you're going, so you wind up in a uh, New York City, maybe you find your way uh, to a shelter where they may or may not have someone that can even talk to you in your language. And then because of conditions within the shelters, you may actually feel safer sleeping on the streets. I mean, this is frankly inhumane. And I have to wonder, like, I, like how many people could possibly even um, be able to get on their feet from that kind of position? I mean, I mean, frankly, it feels like these migrants are being set up to fail in the way they've been handled, I mean, really, from the time that they get inside the U.S.
1: Well, you're completely correct. And it's, it's indicative of, it's not just one racist um, governor in Texas, right? It's the entire system is racist from Texas to New York, right? right. The entire homeless shelter system in New York City is completely a race based system. If you look at the demographics of who's living in these shelters, the majority of them are black people, right? If you look at the homeless population in New York City, the majority of the homeless population are black people. And a lot of it's because uh, a lot of the people who are entering the homeless shelter system uh, over the past two years is because of the the astronomical rents that that have have been rising in New York. It's almost uh, uh, impossible for working class families to live in New York City right so you're seeing all these people entering the shelter system and they're kind of been uh, they're made to feel invisible. We don't hear much about them now. And now we get this whole new group of people, right? These migrants coming from South America. Almost eight thousand of them are already so far uh, coming into New York City, and they're being forced into the into the same system. And it's exposing how fragile and how um, racist and how um, uh, how uh, uh, dysfunctional the entire homeless shelter system is, right? And we spend billions of dollars on homeless services in New York City, and yet you have all these apartments sitting empty because the rent is so high. And if you think about it, we paid everybody, if we paid everybody's rent, to stay in a, you know, or keep them in their homes, it would be cheaper than the amount of money that's being spent on the home, on, on just maintaining this homeless industrial complex that's going on now. So this entire um, migrant crisis that's happening right now in New York is a crisis that's been brewing for years and, and has now just come to a head with, with this migrant situation.
0: Yeah, definitely. And to your point about the system, I mean, I believe you mentioned um, a little earlier that, uh, you know, some of these migrants are coming from D.C. as well. I mean, we're in D.C. This is a city that, you know, is uh, perceived as a progressive place and even claims to be um, an asylum city. And similar to New York, I mean, here in Washington, there's at least 17,000 empty housing units based on uh, local statistics for the very same reason. I mean, it's these uh, luxury units that commend these uh, ridiculous rents that the average person couldn't even begin to try to afford. Meanwhile, we're seeing uh, the homeless issue get worse here in the city with homeless encampments growing and things like that. And all the city can seem to do is to basically just, you know, tear down the the encampments and to try to shoo them away because it makes their sort of gleaming, uh, gentrified town uh, less appealing. So it just feels like at every level, uh, uh, these human beings that, you know, are seeking asylums and a better condition of living are really just being forced failed. And you mentioned, Amir, about, uh, you know, some things that Mayor Eric Adams is perhaps uh, attempting to do or doing to uh, somehow address the situation. But I'm just wondering, are we seeing any other action from other government elements at different levels, the state level, the federal level, to not only address this issue in New York City, but I mean, I got to believe that we're seeing this all over the country as well.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting. There hasn't been anything concrete thus far in terms of actions. I keep hearing things are in the pipeline. There's going to be a response maybe from the federal government, maybe from the state government. But otherwise, it's really left to the city to kind of deal with this situation alone. And I get it. It's not I understand. I like. I want to give the benefit of doubt the city as much as possible. They didn't see this coming. Right. Mm -hmm. They weren't prepared for this. Right. Right. they didn't ask for this, right? So I can give you the benefit of the doubt to an extent. Okay, the first day or two you got caught off guard, whatever. But the system itself should have been prepared for something like this, right? The homeless shelter system, for, for example, should have been prepared for something like this, for some sort of crisis. But in New York, like I've reported before, even if you, if you have a fire, the city's not prepared to help you. Uh, to get on on your feet on the long term. So it's no wonder that when the asylum seekers are coming to New York, the city is completely uh, besides itself and can't, can't seem to really respond to the situation properly or within an adequate amount of time. So the city cannot help the homeless population that it has already, or it can't help the people that are being victimized by fires and floods in New York City and, and, the, and victims of climate change in New York City. It's no wonder that the city cannot properly um, handle the asylum seekers.
0: Yeah, and uh, I think you mentioned something about this a moment ago, Amir, but I am curious about the demographics of the migrants that are coming into New York City. I mean, are these mostly families? Are they sort of single, unmarried people? Or what does that picture look like?
1: It's an eclectic mix. Um, There are many single men coming across the border, but there are families coming across the border, too. Um, My colleague Julia spoke to one mother who— lost one of her children during during the uh, the trip um, and she lost uh, they crossed the Darien ga- the gap that's between Colombia and Panama. and she lost one of her child uh, children. and she she didn't explain what more what happened, but one of her children died. so it's 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 an eclectic mix, but they're coming from Venezuela. um many of them are Venezuelan with uh, 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 a sprinkle of Colombian and other groups, but it's been mostly Venezuelan. And that's probably indicative of the fact of the, of the severe economic um, crisis that, that the U.S. has imposed on Venezuela, so many feel a need to have to travel to such great distances to come and seek help.
0: Yeah. And, you know, what you just mentioned, Amir, I think is an aspect of the immigration issue in the United States that's completely lost on most people in this country. And that's the impact of U.S. imperialism on Latin America and other regions of the world, because you're correct, there is a serious economic crisis in in Venezuela uh, with serious inflation, and there's also the issue of uh, economic sanctions that the U.S. uh, places on Venezuela for no other reason than uh, uh, its socialist government uh, basically refuses to uh, surrender their sovereignty and kowtow to the whims of uh, Washington. And so this then creates um, a situation that uh, make people want to flee their uh, home countries to try to find a better situation in the U.S., but then and as we've been discussing, I mean, they're met with just straight up systemic abuse when they get here. I mean, so it feels really on both ends. We see how imperialism and this uh, U.S. government is uh, a, a sort of a, a core factor in a lot of um, migration flows that we see, not the sole factor, but certainly uh, an important one. And uh, when we see how it's uh, a sort of rippling through people and their families in a very very real way, in a life or death way, as you just described. I mean, you know, to me, it makes it that much more important to really, you know, build a kind of struggle to, to really strike back at all of this.
1: You're 100 percent correct. The refugee crisis crisis that are that are that are gripping the uh, the the world all over the world, right, are are direct results of of, of wars and imperialist wars that the West has has waged on all these countries. So, but like. Uh, foreign policy is directly tied to immigration policy right and we often don't think of it as we think of it as two separate issues but especially in places like Latin America you know people wouldn't be running away from their homes if there weren't all these sanctions that were being imposed on those other countries if there wasn't all these um uh IMF Economic projects that were that are taking place in their countries, like like you see in Honduras and El Salvador, you know. So like it's it's indicative of of our insane farm policy that exploits much of the so-called third world, and that's what's happening in, in the in the in the West and in, 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 uh, America now. And that's what's happening in Europe, and, and if we were as an Arab Muslim American who knows firsthand that. If we weren't bombing many of these Arab and Muslim countries, you wouldn't be seeing many of these Muslim and Arab people trying to um, come from, come across the Mediterranean, right, and and then take these flotillas across the Mediterranean, and go to Europe for better life. So it's indirectly tied to foreign policy and economic policy, and we can't we can't think we can't look the other way on this. If it's, it's, we were like I said, if we weren't involved in all these countries and and and. and Determining, uh, determining their own future, people wouldn't be taking such dire trips.
0: Absolutely. And that, that was actually going to be my next question, because, you know, you've mentioned before about, uh, you know, this immigrant experience as it concerns your own family. And so as someone who has seen that play out and is now a journalist that is uh, putting this uh, experience on the record, I mean, I mean, what's it like sort of uh, viewing it from that per- perspective and trying to just get the basic facts about this out as it's not an analysis uh, that we often see from mainstream platforms?
1: No, because mainstream media doesn't want to connect the dots. We want everything to be disconnected from everything else. And the more, and the more that that's the case, the more we tend not to think of how everything is connected and how, or uh, uh, how complex the systems are, are really are. So just, you know, the narrative around immigration and and migration and, r- and refugees have always been individualized, and and it's always been exhausting to me because I think a lot of people, and good natured people, want to help refugees and they want to help um, asylum seekers and they want to help uh, immigrants, and you and and I think they're good natured, of course, but I think they're not seeing the larger picture of how our, our U.S. foreign policy. And and NATO foreign policy and Western foreign policy has, is 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 um, one of the biggest catalysts for refugee crises and, and asylum crises. and and you can't you can't deal with one without dealing with the other and I think I hope you know moving forward we can tend to see the connections between foreign policy and refugee crises.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Amir, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there but move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back. case against former Argentine president and current vice president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Ali Vargas, writer and journalist with Radio Casa Chun Coca. Ali, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on again. Absolutely, and Ali uh, Christina de Fernandez Kirchner uh, is facing 12 years in what I understand to uh, basically be a corruption case that would also disqualify her from holding public office for life. And this has triggered massive uh, demonstrations in Argentina, with thousands of people uh, coming out to support her and being met with um, police violence in the process. And I was hoping you could help us understand. Uh, just what's happening here. I mean, what is the substance of these allegations and where are they coming from?
3: Yeah, she's um, accused of uh, these corruption allegations from when she was president. She was president well, before uh, the neoliberal president, Marisha Macri, uh, for uh, an infrastructure project. Though so this, the prosecutor's office is asking for 12 years in prison. She hasn't been sentenced to that, but that's what the a, uh prosecutor's office is going for. And it should be noted that this, the particular prosecutor that's leading the charge in this is someone who's famous, a famous ally of the ex-right-wing president, Mauricio Macri. So we can see where these allegations are coming from. Uh Christie says that these allegations have been completely debunked. and But the main issue at play is to stop her from running in the next elections. I think it's a similar situation to what we saw with uh, Lula da Silva in um, the elections, where where Bolsonaro was able to win, in which the state the prosecutor Sergio Moro, who then went on to be a minister in Bolsonaro's government, um, led a charge against Lula that you know stopped him from running for office, which allowed Bolsonaro to win. Had Lula been able to run, um, polls indicate that Bolsonaro would have never become president. And of course, then a few years later, the charge you know. Lula was released from prison, the charges were dropped, and now he's running again. And similar things happening in Argentina because Argentina is in a, a bit of a difficult situation in terms of it's. it has a government led by President Alberto Fernandez with Cristina Kirchner as vice president. However, there is there has been throughout this whole time uh, some of a split between the two factions within government with Alberto Fernandez leading a more... Uh, what you might call sort of moderate progressive faction, and Christina Kirchner representing a more leftist faction. And Christina's been quite critical of the government as well about uh, not, for example, challenging the IMF in a robust enough way and not being able to control inflation, which is now the highest in South America. Um, you know, annual inflation standing at around sort of 90% is a pretty desperate economic situation. And I think the. um, The possibility of Alberto Fernandez himself being able to get re-elected is very, very low, and the only way that the left will be able to remain in power is if Christina, someone like Christina Kirchner, especially herself, was able to stand at the next elections as a as a left wing uh, candidate, critical of the uh, of the current government. So I think that's what the uh, the establishment is trying to. Uh, to stop, and by establishment, I don't mean Alberto Fernandez's government. I mean the, you know, the right wing establishment around Mauricio Macri, who uh, might even run himself or one of his allies, was hoping to, hoping to win the presidency at the next elections, which should be about a year and a half, so not too far away. Um, you know, capitalising on some of the anger around inflation things like this. Yeah.
0: And, you know, like you, Ali, uh, in seeing this, I immediately thought of the situation with uh, Lula da Silva in Brazil, uh, him being uh, similarly in prison. I believe he was also sentenced to 12 years, uh, I think only serving about a year and a half in what you know seemed like a pretty transparent uh, case of uh, a lawfare to keep him out of the electoral scene in the country. And of course, as of now, uh, he stands to uh, make quite an impression, to say the very least, as he leads in the polls in Brazil. And I think the political aspect of what's happening to uh, Kirchner in Argentina, similarly has a very clear uh, political dynamic to it. I mean, um, I believe just yesterday, uh, Kirchner gave a uh, a televised address where she told her supporters, quote, I've said this before. They aren't coming for me. They're coming for all of you, for the salaries, for workers' rights, for retirees, for our indebtedness. That's what they're after. And and given that all else, what would you could say more about the kind of political differences between a uh, uh, Christina Kirchner and a Macri and what it could mean for Argentina moving forward?
3: Yeah, I mean, as I said, I think it, if there isn't a, the next elections, if there isn't a challenge from the left, uh, to the left of the current government, then the right will almost certainly win because there, there is there is a certain level of anger around the current government, around the deteriorating economic situation. Of course, this economic crisis began not with this government, but with the government of Mauricio Macri, where the IMF uh, lent billions to Argentina. Argentina became the number one country um, which the IMF was was lending to. And so when Alberto Fernandez comes in as president, he's saddled with this uh, completely unpayable debt, uh, which... You know they've, they've tried to renegotiate in various ways. Christina Kirchner represents, you know, had different proposals. You know those around Christina and the um, unions and movements believe that large chunks of the debt, especially the chunks taken out towards the end of Macri's presidency, represent an illegitimate debt that it was taken out for for political reasons by um, Macri's government, and that it, it that should be essentially defaulted on. So it's, it's it's two very different sort of visions, and there's been a lot of tension within the between Christine and, and Alberta side of the government. Uh, seen a number of sort of ministers changing on a quite regular basis. Uh, so yeah, that's the that's the tensions that are going into it. And on the right, there's an even more interesting situation in that you have a kind of traditional right, sort of conservative, oligarchical right, represented by Macri himself. You also have um, a sort of a, a firebrand uh, libertarian, the sorts of people that you might only see on the on the internet. Now, in Argentina, is represented by a, a journalist called Javier Millet, who, um, who is now, you know, I think at the midterm elections, came a, a very respectable third uh, with around twenty percent of the vote, and that's expected to increase in a big way. And he could even become the main right-wing candidate at the next elections, and he believes in um, what you know. What we might consider sort of internet libertarianism, so completely um, withdrawing the role of the state from the economy, low, having a flat rate of taxes at an almost completely minimal level, and having the only role of the state as a kind of maintaining a police force, and that's essentially it. Um, he believes in dollarizing, the economy as the solution to inflation. So this is uh, there's a, there's a lot of tensions on both the left and the right, with two uh, very different proposals on each side.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I got to say, based on what you're saying, I mean, it really seems like the political trajectory for Argentina as a country moving forward really seems to uh, almost be kind of up for grabs uh, at this moment. And you mentioned the issue of inflation a little earlier. I mean, what are some of the other uh, pressing issues facing Argentina at this moment that uh, you think have uh, brought it uh, to this moment?
3: I hope that if you ask Argentina what this is facing the country, they'd say number one, two and three is uh, is inflation. And uh, that is it's, it's something that there's virtually very little discussion of other topics because of how devastating it has been. And at this point, Argentina, uh, the inflation in Argentina is higher that the monthly inflation in Argentina is higher than in Venezuela. Um, and Venezuela has managed to reduce their level of inflation of a lot from the high when at the at the height of the sanctions but um you know Argentina hasn't hasn't faced you know these type of sanctions etc but now the inflation is even higher than that of Venezuela um you know people for example when they when they get paid their salaries what they have to do they have to run to the um grocery store and basically spend just buy, buy as much as they possibly can because if they wait till tomorrow or the day after then they can't you know their, their wages are worth less. Can't buy as much. People try are trying to save as much as they can in uh, in cryptocurrencies, um, in even obviously dollars. And in the north of Argentina, there's an interesting uh, news piece in Argentinian media about how people are beginning to save money in bolivianos, in uh, the Bolivian currency. They, as soon as they get paid, they go uh, to the border to exchange money. And keep as much of their uh, salary in Bolivian currency because that is stable compared to the Argentinian peso. So this, this inflation creates all kinds of other problems. It creates creates a general sense of anxiety, um, stress. You know, even just on a psychological level for people, and uh, people find it very difficult to to see past um, anything beyond that because that is when you know when the money in your pocket is disappearing by by each passing day, that's, uh, you know, what what else are you going to be thinking about?
0: Yeah, definitely. And and I'm also wondering in a regional sense, like what do you see as – the value of uh, Argentina as a country within South America and within uh, uh, Latin America as a region? Because, I mean, my feeling is that uh, someone with the politics of uh, uh, a Macri or some other sort of element would uh, likely be very uh, sympathetic and vulnerable to, you know, influence and interference from the West and the United States and elements like this. And so what is sort of the geopolitical uh, uh, situation as it pertains to Argentina? How does it Factor into that as a country.
3: Well, I think Argentina, uh, as a, on the whole, has played a quite a positive role in the region in the past few years. It played a very important role during the the coup in Bolivia, for example. They were the main, uh, you know, point of refuge, giving asylum to uh, those who were being persecuted during 2020 during the during the coup regime, including you know, Evo Morales himself. Uh, providing a place from where people could operate as well to um, to, to to coordinate the work that was necessary to, to recover democracy in Bolivia. Um, on other issues, Argentina has been, uh, you know, uh, criticised by the countries. For example, on the issue with Venezuela, although they have uh, they did restore relations with the government of Nicolas Maduro, um, I think they've been uh, quite lukewarm compared to some other countries in terms of. Uh, demanding an end to sanctions, and just now at the moment they've got a um, they've got a dispute with the government of Venezuela because uh, essentially one of their their airlines, which is of course sanctioned by the United States, and with a pilot that's sanctioned by the United States, landed in Argentina. The Argentinian government has like confiscated it, and essentially rather than return it to Venezuela, they are following through you know orders from a judge in Florida trying to enforce US sanctions. So that's become a point of, of conflict between the, the government of Venezuela and the government of Argentina. And that, that sort of foreign policy issues is is also another one of the tensions that exist between Christina's side, Christina Kirchner's side of the government and Alberto Fernandez's side of the government. So um yeah, but that Alberto Fernandez has uh put a lot of time and effort into building relations with uh, uh, progressive governments of the region uh, you know especially Mexico now Colombia and more but I think it's his government at least is, uh, it, is not one that's going to be here for the long term as, uh, as I said in
0: yeah. And when you speak of the um, progressive governments of the region, I mean, I feel like that's a dynamic that really can't be avoided in Latin America at this moment. I mean, uh, you know, maybe a couple times a week we uh, discuss different issues within the region and um, the, the this sort of uh, wave, if you will, of different progressive and left leaning governments um, in a number of countries in the regions definitely seem to be shifting of the politics in a uh, political direction, which... Which, you know, uh, seems like it's a cause for consternation in the global north. But in terms of integration, relationships with each other and other countries throughout uh, the world, it seems like uh, there's some real uh, a promise and uh, potential there. And so it seems then that uh, really, which way Argentina goes politically, uh, maybe could uh, have an impact, kind of on that uh, broader dynamic within Latin America. But how do you see that, Oliver?
3: Yeah, and. As I mentioned earlier, obviously Argentina has been a big part of the, the integration between these progressive governments. But you yeah, know, would that be put at risk if uh, you know the current government loses power to a right wing administration? That would, I think, put a spanner in the works because Argentina is the you know is the second biggest economy after Brazil. It's it's incredibly important strategically um, in the region, both politically and economically. So would you know? There's a lot at stake, and the only way to uh, maintain Argentina as part of this uh, progressive sphere was if someone such as Cristina were to uh, stand for office and, and most likely win. But they'd have to do that on the basis of uh, a critique of the current government because there does exist a lot of anger. And of course, people remember that Cristina's in, in Cristina Kirchner's presidency, um, there, yeah. You know, for example, the the exchange rate. I remember I was in 20, I was in Buenos Aires in 2014. Eight pesos equals one Whereas it today? Is nearly 300 pesos to one dollar. That's how the currency has been devalued since Christina Kirchner left office. So Christina Kirchner can come with an argument that that the look things were better. Things were better during my time in office. Alberto Fernandez will make will have to will have a very difficult argument to put if he is to stand again. And um, that's 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 part of why that's, I would say, the biggest reason of why there is this attack on Christina now.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Ali, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luquman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, as always, great to be back with you. Thank you. Absolutely. And Chris, to uh, kick things off today, uh, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook have all taken down a a series of accounts that were basically a a propaganda operation that were pushing pro U.S. uh, narratives against Iran, Russia and China. And uh, this is something that was discovered by researchers from the Stanford Internet, excuse me, Internet Observatory or the S.I.O and Graphica. And uh, Renee Resta, who's a research manager at the SIO, told Motherboard in an email, quote, these findings unveil what we believe are the first major covert pro-America and Western operations identified and suspended by Twitter and Meta. And uh, so I was hoping you could sort of explain uh, just what's happening here, Chris. I mean, it sounds like there was basically a pro-US uh, misinformation campaign that was uh, operating on some of these uh, uh platforms and so i mean do we know where this comes from how it was operating uh, just uh, what's the situation here
4: yeah we we don't know a whole lot about the the source of all of this uh Propaganda, really. I mean, I think it's the right name for it, you know, pro-U.S. propaganda. Uh, as the vice points out, you know, this is really targeting Russia, China, Iran, but also other countries, uh, particularly from the for- former Soviet Union and a number of uh, Eastern uh, eastern countries where, you know, there's a lot of overlap between Russian and Chinese cultural impact. From either being, you know, close to uh, China geographically and being part of the former Soviet Union. So I think that's really important to keep in mind as the US government is really kind of in this panic to maintain uh, or grow its sphere of influence as it fears uh, China and Russia's growing influence in the region and across the world. Now, If you've heard about this kind of propaganda operation before, it's certainly in the context of the 2016 election and so-called Russian interference in that election where they, you know, they claimed the the Internet Research Agency, which is based out of St. Petersburg, was, uh, you know, running ads and creating Facebook events and doing all sorts of things uh, around, you know, issues like Black Lives Matter Saying that uh, you know it was only because of this Russian operation in twenty sixteen that uh, these things were were you know anywhere part of common discussion. I, this isn't getting that kind of attention, of course, because it's coming from uh, the u s or coming from people who are working on behalf of U.S. interests, and I'm being very careful. We don't know exactly, again, where this is coming from. Is it the government? Is it independent actors? We're still not entirely clear. I think the quote that you read earlier is, is very telling, and I think the most important part is that it is that they say identified and suspended by Twitter and Meta. Because this is not the first time we have seen pro-U.S. sentiment pushed on on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, any of those, it's usually just extremely well-funded and well-coordinated. For example, the White House had TikTok influencers come to uh, a virtual uh, seminar or a virtual meeting with uh, Joe Biden and others at the beginning of the you know, Russian uh, military intervention in Ukraine so that they could get what the U.S. wanted them to be telling the rest of the world and especially their TikTok followers, in order to promote the U.S. line, the pro-NATO line. So the really significant thing here is that this has actually been taken down. That leads me to believe that this was not a government uh, action or not officially uh, a government-sanctioned action, but some sort of third party uh, you know, responsible for this.
0: Yeah. And uh, according to the report from Motherboard, these posts uh, mainly focused on Russia, though, uh, certainly we saw this directed at Iran and, and China as well, as we noted with posts that, quote, depicted Russia as a nefarious actor working to undermine independent democracies, adding in January 2022. For example, the accounts covered mass protests that followed a sudden increase in fuel prices in Kazakhstan, but mainly through the lens of debunking allegations of foreign influence. And I think what you just mentioned, Chris, is noteworthy in terms of this isn't the first time we've seen like a pro U.S. Um, uh, coordinated propaganda operation. This is just the first time that these companies have decided to uh, uh, do something about it. But what I think this sort of makes clear is something that I think we already knew, is that how these uh, same um, social media platforms that, you know, are, are of a daily use for many people across this country and across the world is how they can really quite easily be used for uh, uh, the spread and perpetuation of imperialist propaganda, particularly at a time when the U.S. is uh, uh, being particularly aggressive against the countries in question, speaking of Russia, Iran and China. And although we don't know the uh, uh, source of these uh, posts at this point, um, I think their intentions were pretty clear in terms of the messaging that they were trying to push and as such, I just think it further underlines the, the deeply political nature of, uh, of these platforms to begin with.
4: Yeah, certainly. I think an- another important point here that is uh, you know made in this article, and I'm glad the researchers uh, really you know pushed this this uh, fact is that these uh, this had very little reach. Of extremely low reach, and mm. in, in fact, the the internet research agency ads that were put out, the the events, the the posts, also had very little reach. I mean, they could not have affected on their own. The 2016 election. If you listen to the media, if you listen to Democratic representatives and Congress people and talking heads, you think that, you know, every single, you know, anti-Clinton post you saw in 2016 was some sort of, you know, Russian plot. But in fact, the the posts that were made by the IRA were actually uh, not very popular. They did not get a lot of reach. Um, In this case, you know, yeah, I I think the, the interference angle is very interesting to me. Um, because it's not clear what exactly the, the long term goal of this kind of operation is at such a relatively small scale compared to what the US government could do and the US and, and obviously its you know partners across the world in you know government and private sector at the same time we're also seeing you know this this kind of meme warfare around NATO uh, on particularly on Twitter and Instagram, but a little bit on Facebook, you know, with the uh, NATO and, and uh, Ukrainian government, you know, basically admitting and and openly welcoming you know, pro-NATO groups that are posting, you know, memes uh, on, on these platforms. So I think when we're talking about the political influence of a platform like Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or, you know, so many of these, we really have to, you know, consider what is the kind of, what are we talking about when we're talking about misinformation? What are we talking about when we're talking about, you know, interference in normal behavior? Uh, on those sites, because these companies are really interested in maintaining uh, and furthering a a status quo based on so-called Western values, and that really relies on capitalism and imperialism.
0: Definitely. And switching gears a little bit, Chris, to uh, one of our favorite topics here on Tech for the People, uh, cryptocurrency. And it looks as though cryptocurrency miners are looking to expand in the state of Texas and in doing so could require as much power as the entire state of New York. And I mean... We've talked on the show before about the serious environmental implications for uh, crypto mining, Chris. And so what's happening with these particular miners and what is their interest in Texas?
4: Well, they're interested in Texas, is that Texas has said we welcome crypto miners, and what they're doing is, I mean, they're going to set up giant server farms, essentially giant racks of computers, uh, using specialized equipment that are going to mine for cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and others. And by mining, what we're what, what we mean is they're going to be uh, basically running extremely complicated calculations. The more Bitcoin for example there is in the world the harder it becomes to mine the more computationally expensive it becomes to find the the keys that you know lead to the next block and the next coin basically so at this point, it's extremely expensive uh, to ha- to maintain and have all of this equipment, and then to run it, to physically have it plugged into a power grid. Uh, but Texas has said, you know, we're going to welcome crypto miners. We're going to welcome this, but. Texas, we've seen many times over the past just a couple of years, the Texas power grid, which is not connected to the power grid in the rest of the country, and they've done that on purpose in the state so to avoid federal regulation. The power grid cannot even handle uh, extreme weather, whether that be cold or hot. We, you know, certainly remember a couple of years ago, I believe it was, when you know the the power grid went down in significant population areas uh, during the winter. People were having trouble heating, cooking, you know, just surviving during a, a, a cold snap. Um, we've seen it this summer as well as there are extreme high temperatures due to climate change and. The, the irony of this is that creating these, you know, welcoming these miners, these Bitcoin miners, is going to actually increase the level of you know power needed, which is going to have an, an impact on climate change. I think it's very interesting they use the example of a uh, you know it's going to require as much power of all of New York State because there's an example of um, I believe it was Lake Seneca, to, you know, up in um, upstate New York where uh, a decommissioned power plant was taken over and purchased by crypto miners and residents said that they could actually tell after this power plant started being used instead to uh, to mine crypto that you know the ecosystem of the lake had actually been changed the water was warmer the uh, the the Animals, birds, fish were, you know, dying off effectively uh, near this lake that was in, you know, upstate New York a couple years ago. So there's this this uh, council, basically. It's a corporate group. The Texas Blockchain Council represents these crypto miners. Um, and they're really pushing Texas and uh, Aircop, the the state power, you know, power company and uh, council to approve more licenses and this is this is just going to be detrimental to the environment. it's going to be detrimental to people and businesses in Texas who obviously rely on a stable power grid which they already don't have.
0: Definitely. And, you know, it's just what's so frustrating about this and talking about crypto mining is that there's this, frankly, dangerous process that is harmful to the environment in a time where we're already in a climate crisis and all for the sake of this thing of a dubious value and origin. And I just feel like it's indicative of so many issues with the cryptocurrency um, uh, in general, Chris, Chris, and how it sort of continues. Continues to, to, to grow, and the fact that a government like Texas would basically invite these people, I just find particularly worrisome. You know what I mean?
4: Uh, no, absolutely, it, it's worrisome, but it's not surprising. I mean, if we look at the political movement, uh, you know, of the of the Texas uh, state uh, leadership, you know, this is exactly the kind of uh, you know really. Libertarian move that they want. You know, they're not even connected to the federal power grid and the national power grid system, so they can avoid regulation of their power grid. And that's why ERCOT fails uh, at maintaining, you know, accessible power for all residents, especially in times of emergency. Cryptocurrency was supposed to be, or was pushed as this liberatory idea and concept. It would get you away from. Uh, fiat currencies it would get you you know it was, it was going to be something that people could use and get away from you know government intervention in currencies I mean it's a completely impossible to do and yet we have all of these companies wanting to get you know in on this to to mine cryptocurrencies to uh, do things like generate nfts which also you know that's a, a Uh, related, you know, technology, certainly, you know, blockchain technology. um, And there is absolutely no care here for the environment. There is no care for, you know, just the well-being of everyday people.
0: Definitely. And jumping back to uh, Twitter for a moment, there's actually a a whistleblower, a person by the name of uh, Peter Mudge Zatko, who's alleging that uh, Twitter has some serious privacy and security issues that could very well put uh, investors, users and even U.S. national security at risk. Uh, What's happening here with uh, what this uh, whistleblower is suggesting?
4: Yeah. So after a major security breach at Twitter a few years ago, uh, Mudge, uh, as he's known, uh, was brought into Twitter to head up their security. Um, he left the company. Uh, allegedly, he was let go earlier this year and now has a significant uh, 200 page plus uh, whistleblower report that has been sent to uh, Congress. a redacted version of it has been um, sub, uh, published uh, by uh, the verge and and others. Uh, basically, he's saying that there's a number of issues in within, within Twitter that could lead to major future security issues, one being that about half of the company's engineers have just full access to the database. Basically, they can go in, Update things, look at things, download information, check out your account, all the things they want to do about uh, any kind of logging or audit trail of who's doing what and when they did it. I mean, that is just a completely basic you know, thing that you want in terms of security. Uh, Mudge used the example of January 6th where you know Twitter had sort of a war room set up and he was in it and he said you know he was concerned about sympathetic individuals you know within Twitter uh, trying to influence the platform during the chaos of the the coup attempt effectively uh, and he said how do we Prevent people from getting into our production systems right now, and by people he meant our own engineers, the staff members. And he was told that there was really no way to do that. So think about how many people were were relying on Twitter as a source of information on January sixth. And what if some engineer had taken over the platform and started posting, uh, you know, pro coup? Uh, you know, materials further than it was already being, you know, they were already being shared. I mean, that would have been extremely devastating, you know, more so than the actual, uh, you know, event itself in some ways. Uh, and now extrapolate that to any other emergency, any other kind of national, local, international situation where you have a crisis. And the idea that any Twitter engineer could effectively, without being, uh, you know, without any way to find out who it was, impact the, the production systems like that, uh, you know, really should scare us as to you know how little this company cares about the massive impact that it has as a news source and source of, you know, discussion, entertainment uh, for much of the world. It doesn't care. Uh, another thing that uh, Mudge pointed out was that if a couple Twitter data centers where the servers are hosted went down, they actually had no real way of knowing how long or even how to bring the service back up. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to some people, but again, how many people rely on Twitter for local information, for news, for connection to other people, for entertainment, it really pushes home the point that these platforms cannot be allowed to continue without being, you know, without having serious regulation, without having any kind of, you know, serious governance by the people who are most affected by them and that is not it should not be the shareholders or the executives that should be us the people who are on there every day.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luquman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, August 30th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, by any means necessary, to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show, because at that time you'll be able to give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's two, zero two five two one-one three two zero. Our operators all standing by. I also want to encourage folks to follow us at uh, Twitter, twitter twitter.com slash B-A-M necessary. Can also hear the show on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore bye underscore any underscore means could also hear us on sputnik.mave.digital that's sputnik.mave.digital and just like every day we are streaming live on rumble rumble.com slash c as in cat slash b a m necessary but wherever you are in this world we want to hear from you. And today we are very happy to be joined by Christine Hendricks, president to the University City School Board, junior Bayard Rustin Fellow with the Fellowship of Reconciliation, and contributor to the Truth Telling Project and We Stay Woke podcast. Christine, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thank you for having me today, guys.
0: Absolutely. And Christine, we've been talking a good bit on the show, as uh, I know a lot of people have, about uh, President Joe Biden's student debt loan forgiveness plan, of course, uh, $10,000. And we've been discussing the fact that uh, the average debt for most people in this country is closer to $40,000. And I wanted to raise this with you today because you're someone who lives, works and organizes in a working class uh, community there in the St. Louis area. And I was just sort of wondering how this is uh, uh, striking you and perhaps, you know, some of the folks that you've been speaking with or in community with or been working with. But just just generally wondering, what is your analysis of this uh, development with the Biden administration and, you know, what you see as the impacts, if any?
5: Yeah, absolutely. A great question. Uh, so, you know, I, I really think that, you know, when I hear and, you know, see people talking about this, I think that, you know, it's one, too little, too late, uh, you know, with $10,000 in, you know, you think the average um, is well over that. I mean, I think, you know, for me, that was maybe the $10,000 will pay some of the interest, um, off my student loans. And so, you know, I think for a lot of people, they just see it as something as basically a campaign promise, um, that he made that he can go back for the midterm elections and say, Hey guys, you know, we did this student loan forgiveness. However, the actual impact, um, you know, so the intent will look good, but the impact will be at minimal, uh, you know, for most people. I think there are some people, and congratulations to them, who the ten or $20,000 for those in that cell grant uh, will be monumental and their loan will be forgiven. Or maybe they pay down enough that that 10000 you know, up to 10000 or 20000 will be enough to, you know, get them over the hump. And I think that's great. But I just think for, you know, the majority of people, um, will still be saddled with student loans. We'll still have the same amount, uh, we'll still basically have the same amount of debt. If you are you were in a position where you were you know already having trouble paying and they were, you know, um, garnishing wages or something like that, you're going to even have a more difficult time with this. So I just really think of it as, you know, something that you can, you know, put a check mark next to, but the impact on actual people's lives for the majority of people who may receive something, I don't think it will be enough to truly impact them. And then two, um, I think that, you know, a lot of people would be raising the alarms and some people are afraid that, um, you know, this may result in further inflation, which I don't think is going to be the, the big problem, because I think they are in a situation where I think that people will be paying off debts and bills and not just splurging, you know, on their next vacation. Um, but I do think that that's something that some people will see as being negative um, and possibly hurting Joe Biden. But I think overall, people on the left um, are mostly disappointed um, and still pushing for full forgiveness.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I definitely agree with you um, that, uh, you know, if this forgiveness plan uh, either eliminates or makes a considerable difference in your debt, then, you know, that's all well and good. You know, I I reserve my ire, as we're saying, uh, Christine, for this uh, government that could wipe out this debt if they wanted to. But they obviously simply do not want to. And I'll say it all the time and I'll keep saying it as long as it's relevant. Every day, Joe Biden. Biden wakes up and consciously decides not to eliminate student debt. It is a choice. Um, And so and and also from that perspective, Christine, I'm wondering, you know, why you think that is? Why is it that. We continue to see uh, this kind of too little, too late, sort of not even half measure, maybe a quarter measure from the Biden administration, although certainly his is not the only administration that is guilty of this sort of thing. I mean, to me, it definitely does come off as a kind of a a last ditch sort of throwing of crumbs uh, to a country that by and large is saddled. Uh, with great debt because we're heading towards uh, the midterms and the Democrats desperately need something, anything to uh, uh hang their hat on. And uh, I think uh, the, the kind of rollout, and that's really how I see it, the kind of public relations rollout following the announcement of this with, you know, uh, Democrats and, and liberal supporters sort of hailing it as a victory for poor and working people. I mean, it just frankly feels kind of uh cynical. Now, whether or not it's effective, I I think remains to be seen. And maybe and this is a difficult question perhaps to ask, Christine. But I mean, I'm generally wondering your thoughts on why wouldn't Biden just uh, uh, cancel student debt if it's in his power to do so. And he claims to want to actually make a difference on the issue.
5: Yeah, and I've seen a, a, a lot of pontification on, you know, whether or not he could he could or should actually clear all of student debt. And a lot of, uh, you know, the talking heads are like, oh, this be that should be something that should go through Congress. But if we're assuming that Biden unilaterally could, with the stroke of a pen, clear all student debt, if, if this is possible, and he can, and, it's you know, not going to get challenged by the Supreme Court or any of the other nonsense that, you know, can happen in, you know, present day America. Um, I really believe that, you know, you can't serve two masters. And that's basically what it is. You can't serve, you know, corporate donors and the, the overlords and actually serve the American people. And what would be good for the American people may not be good for corporate our corporate overlords. And I mean, I see, you know, for a lot of us, if, you know, we did not have this burden of debt, we can make different choices about our places of employment. We can make different choices about how uh, we want to be employed and maybe, you know, not having that burden of debt would allow us to open our own businesses or to, you know, seek independent work elsewhere. And so, you know, I really believe that, you know, not completely wiping that debt, having us having to be saddled with debt is a certain way to keep us, you know, enslaved and chained to to the very system that we're trying to break free from. You know, if we continue to have this debt, we're going to continue to, you know, go to these jobs that maybe make us unhappy and continue making money for others. And so I just really think that it's all of, you know, it just is going to continue upholding the system while also, you know, throwing the peasants a bone.
0: Definitely. And and really, you said it all, Christine, when you said that you cannot serve two masters. And that is absolutely true. You cannot serve these corporate interests. You cannot serve this capitalist class while at the same time pretending to serve the interests of the masses of poor working and oppressed people in this country. That is an irreconcilable contradiction. But since Biden and the Democrats find themselves in a, a precarious position, politically precisely because of their party's uh, uh, ongoing fealty to those same capitalist interests. This is why they have to throw that bone to the peasants, as you say, Christine. And, you know, just to be clear, you know, the the Democrats are just one wing of this uh, political ruling class. I mean, the Republicans sort of have their own way of operating and they have uh, their own sort of way of pretending to play to the interest of poor and working people, while also um, playing to like the worst reactionary elements elements within certain sectors of the working class in terms of racism, homophobia, anti-immigrant xenophobia and things like this. But yet and still, these two ruling class parties, Democrats and Republicans, have precisely the same class interests. They just have somewhat different uh, 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 ways and strategies and means of achieving those ends. You know what I mean? And so this, this is the conundrum That we consistently find ourselves in in the United States and uh, uh, under this system uh, where every two and four years we're expected to take part in this um, ritual of voting, knowing full well that there's a good chance that we likely won't get um, a a goodly number of the things we want, even if the person we want to win wins. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so it's just like this vicious endless cycle that we constantly find ourselves in uh, uh, Christine. And as such, I feel like that's why the kind of grassroots organizing aspect of things is so, so important where there's a real clarity amongst people about what it is they want and about, uh, uh, and and beyond that, a willingness to actually fight, which we don't see uh, from the Democrats and and other sectors. And uh, as such, it feels like that's where a lot of um, the real fight can can really sort of emerge from. I mean, even if we look historically, I mean, when we see struggle emerge out of places like Selma, Alabama or Ferguson, Missouri, you know what I mean? Places that perhaps the average person in this country may not even be that familiar with. But because these contradictions are so sharp. In some of these areas, then that's why I think we see the fight sort of rage uh, uh, in such an intense way. And so I just feel like that, that kind of bottom up way of organizing and thinking politically is really crucial to really keeping our heads about us as uh, things continue to seem like they're spinning out of control here. You know what I mean?
5: Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that, you know, when I'm, you know, engaging with people and I'm trying to convince people who otherwise probably wouldn't vote or who are, you know, disenfranchised or feel disenfranchised with voting um, or discouraged from uh, from voting, you know, and I, I tell them, you know, you're not just voting for people, uh, you're voting for ideas, you're voting for policy, you're voting for, uh, you know, street throws, bridges, schools, you know, everything, and also, when we do have to vote for people, although we can look to the Democrats and we can say, on many respects, they are effectless. <laughs> on many respects, they, uh, you know, are not uh, producing the type of policies that would be helpful to you know working class people on the ground. And we know that. Republicans or in right leaning um people are trying to take us backwards. And so, you know, while we are struggling, while we are um, you know, rebelling against the system and while we are trying to take back the rights um that they are trying to snatch from us, um, we, we have to sometimes, and I hate doing it, but sometimes we have to look and say, do we want this person is at least on their platform saying they want clean and fresh water, um, I can rock with that versus this person who's okay with, you know, the, you know, corporations polluting, you know, the water and so no one can drink it. And so we do have to make those hard choices and continue to organize, continue to hold the people that we do put in office, um, their, hold their feet to the fire. And I do believe that we have to start engaging with people that we would not believe to be our allies. And in fact, would consider, um, you know, enemies in a way we have to continue to engage with them. We have to be cold distant and calculating when we're engaging in politics and not, you know, just thinking about, you know, who we like or who makes us feel so warm and fuzzy inside and, and, you know, continue to struggle on the ground, continue to make noise, continue to be ungovernable at times because, you know, we have to let uh, the people in, in power know that real power comes from the people anyway.
0: Definitely. And I mean, we talk on the show all the time about just what it is that unity means and how we should highlight those areas where we agree and uh, uh, sort of de-emphasize the areas where we disagree. Now, some folks take that to mean that we should then start just organized with outright reactionaries. We definitely shouldn't take it that far. Uh, But I definitely uh, see what you're saying, Christine. And speaking of the Biden administration and uh, sort of the Democratic Party more broadly, particularly as we head to. Uh, uh, midterms. I mean, it's being reported that some Democratic candidates are actually somewhat hesitant to be you know, seen with uh, Joe Biden um, uh, uh, as he makes these different stops uh, during um, the, the run-up to these midterm races, especially some of the more um, com- competitive ones, and reportedly are basically making decisions on an almost case-by-case basis about whether or not they want to appear with him. I was looking at a piece published by NBC News, and they... A, a quote, a Wisconsin based poster saying, quote, nobody's unhappy that Biden got some things done and that inflation seems to be easing a little bit. And maybe he's not as dead in the water as it seems six or eight months ago. But let's not kid ourselves. This is still a country where almost 80 percent of the people think that things are headed on the wrong track. And I always find it interesting, um, Christine, when These sorts of narratives emerge on these major uh, uh, liberal uh, corporate owned media platforms because I think it really evidences a serious kind of conflict that is happening to an extent um, within the Democratic Party. And so I think this actually goes back to what we're saying about the too little too late. It's like, well, yeah, you, you, you did something that people seem to be responding positively to. But given the sort of avalanche of everything else that has come behind that, it may actually hurt my chances as a candidate in winning if I'm too closely associated with you. And so, Christine, how do you parse these kinds of contradictions that we see um, uh, uh, within uh, the Democratic Party? What do you think it means and how do you think it feeds into this uh, this uh, <laughs> increasingly worrisome uh, political moment that we're in, to say the very least? Yeah, you
5: know, I kind of, when I I don't know if you've ever taken those polls before, but I've actually taken quite a few of them when they call like from now on, I'm like, yes, I will answer these questions. And you know, the way that in which they ask the questions, it's really easy, especially for someone like me who, um, you know, is left-leaning, um, typically always votes in every single election, even the, the off ones that nobody even knows about. Um, and somebody could say, well, what do you think about the direction that the country's going? I'm like, it's going in the wrong direction. Well, you know, on a general ticket, would you vote, you know, for Democrats or Republicans? I'm going to vote for Democrats. Well, what do you think about this? So there's a lot of the ways in which they ask the question. A person could say, I think we're going the wrong way. I don't particularly care for Joe Biden. And... You know, given a matchup between generic Democrat and generic Republican, I'm going to choose generic Democrat. And, and so I think that, you know, the Dems in the party see that, um, that that Joe Biden is relatively unpopular. He never was really popular. He, he truly came to power because he was not Trump. He was uh, just, you know, an older white guy that people could go, hmm, whatever they could just put there. Yes, that, you know, status quo, not Trump. Not too far left. We're going to be, you know, let's just get Trump out of there. And so I really think that you know people are having buyer's remorse because they realize that um, as long as Biden has you know been in Washington, he's not as effective as they thought that he was going to be, and and definitely not as bold as progressives would have wanted him to be. And so therefore, buyer's remorse. I do think, though, with, you know, everything that's gone on, a lot of the pollsters are also saying that Democrats have a good chance of retaining um, the House. And Mitch McConnell has been caught saying that he wasn't so sure Republicans would be able to take back the Senate. And so I think that Democrats just, you know, who are out campaigning, they just really want to be careful. Me personally, if I was, you know, campaigning, I wouldn't want to be seen with Joe Biden either, because in in my district, um, he's probably not very popular. Or if he if he is or if he's not completely unpopular, um, people really don't think too much about him either. And they don't think that he's, you know, focused on the issues that, you know, are really concerning to St. Louisans. And so I think that, that those Democrats are are making the right decision, not to mention I doubt he'll be the um the nominee in twenty twenty four. They've been saying this for at least the past year, <laughs> you know, that, that it's not going to be that they don't want Joe. So it's not really surprising that that, that that this is what's happening. And I don't necessarily fault Democrats for that. I think that Democrats need to, at times, say, no, we we don't. You know, we're not on the same page as this guy. And they, and they have to prove to to their constituents that, that they're going to go to Congress and do the job that their constituents want them to do. And clearly, Joe Biden's not doing that.
0: Yeah, it's been a really interesting development because um, we've consistently been saying on uh, the show that basically if the Democrats don't do something drastic, that we could definitely see um, a real surge from the Trumpist wing of the uh, uh, Republican Party come uh, this November and in 2024. Although I'm not, you know, saying that to suggest that the mainstream Republicans are that much better, but you know, and and of course we try not to be too predictive. But even like looking at some of the most recent polls. It it actually does, I think, speak to precisely what you're saying, Christine, that it it, it is more neck and neck than maybe we think. And like you say, to see people like Mitch McConnell even sort of speak to this, I think, is making for a a, a very sort of sort of intense kind of um, atmosphere, perhaps even more so than usual, given a number of factors. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By
2: any means necessary.
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary. on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luquemann. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 02521-1320. That's 2-025211320. I continue to be joined by Christine Hendricks. And uh, Christine, uh, you passed along this uh, story in Missouri that it's pretty wild to me in a way to be seeing in, in 2022. This is a, a small town, a school district in southwest Missouri uh, called Cassville that apparently is planning on bringing back a corporal punishment to uh, punish the students. Now, according to reports, uh, students would only be spanked pending a permission slip signed by parents, uh, basically giving the OK to do so, but they can also write a letter op- out. And uh, Cassville is reportedly about 15 miles north of the Arkansas border with a population of only about uh, 3,200. Now, this reminds me of uh, the Christian school that that I went to when I was a kid that also had corporal punishment. Now, luckily, I never had to actually experience this. And if I did, I shudder to think what my parents would have did. But I mean, Christine, what what's happening here? And uh, what do you make of uh, how this um, issue is developing here in uh, Cassville?
5: Yeah. So, you know, it was kind of weird because my mom checked me and she texted me the, the article and she's like, what? I can't believe they're bringing back spanking. And I was like, well, sorry to, you know, inform you, but it is not illegal in at all in the state of Missouri to spank children. In public schools, what is happening or what has happened is that most public schools in the state of Missouri have made their own rule against the corporal punishment. And so, but as far as a a state law, it it is quite legal um, for students to, and I don't know if that's true in other states, people may want to look, but it is quite legal in the state of Missouri to spank their children. Um, as long as you don't leave a mark on them. Um, and I think maybe you can't hit them with certain things. But so, I mean, those are the rules that are on the books and that's how Missouri feels about protecting its children. Um, so I, I wasn't really surprised um, that, you know, this small town, small school, um, probably very uh, Christian, you know, town, uh, wanted to bring back, um, you know, uh, you know, reinstate corporal punishment. And it, it is a very opt in system. So you do have to, into it, you do have to say, yes, you can um, thank my child. Um, but I, I think, and I'm not sure, I haven't necessarily read it in any of the reports, but I, I think just as someone who's close to education and has children of my own. Um, I believe that for a lot of districts, um, right after COVID, for the, you know the past year or so, that children have actually been back into the classrooms full time. Um, they've had a lot of disciplinary problems. You know, I've um, been, you know talking to our board of education. But most of the people on the board do not have children in our district, and so they you know don't know the ins and outs of what's you know happening in the school a lot of times. And a lot of times at the high school, there's fights like every day, every other day. And so, you know... I think that a lot of schools are very, um, you know, just hands up in the air and just like we don't know what to do about um, the disciplinary problems that we're seeing with our children. I think thinking is going the wrong way, they should have more restorative um, outlook on discipline. But I do see it as, um, you know, schools are suffering under the weight of the expectations that um, they have to, to have, you know, to, to manage, you know, classrooms and, uh, you know, manage expectations for parents. And just a little side note, in the state of Missouri, uh, when we did our assessment test, which we don't really like, but we stopped to do them, um, you know, in math, students, no no school really scored over 35% proficiency in advance. That's terrible. That means the other, you know, 65% of students are basic or below basic. And then e- English language arts, only forty-five percent of the students were basically passing. So I think that it's a real uphill battle that teachers are facing um, as far as classroom management and discipline goes. And I think that they just take a very regressive way to deal with it.
0: Definitely, we got a caller on the line here. Mike, tell us what's on your mind.
2: Hey, yeah, first of all, uh, you made a good point about when you was talking about the immigrants uh, coming in and all these vacant buildings. Um, that's overpriced and, you know, why they're not using it. I think that's a good point because you you got a lot of people that really don't want to go into those shelters. Because I remember when I was homeless, I didn't want to go into a shelter. Um, the, the place I feel more safe was, was in my vehicle. But before the ticket amnesty program, I had my temporary shelter taken away from me because the tickets are old. So you made a good point about that. Uh, another thing that I noticed that the president is given um, – uh, IDs to the immigrants that's coming into this country, well, that that's fine and dandy. But living in the District of Columbia, you got a lot of people in the District of Columbia that don't have IDs because of the aggressive ticket program. And I wish that the president would ask the Madam Mayor to take some of that COVID-19 money to use as a form of reparations to just forgive people's outstanding um, debt that they owe on their driver's license to get the driver's license back reinstated no matter how mi- uh, many years that it's been suspended because we have an election coming up and, you know, they really want people to have some kind of form of identification before they um, get ready uh, to vote. And I think the lack of a lot of people not having IDs is a lot of problems. So, like I said, I got no problem with him giving IDs for the immigrants, but if they can do that for the immigrants, then I, I feel that people that don't have IDs um, in this country, you um, should be on their phone saying, uh, to make sure that uh, that the uh, people in this country have IDs that don't have it, especially District of Columbia because of the aggressive ticket program. Also, um, I think it's a shame that this is Black August, and being in the DMV, that I have not seen um, in some of these black businesses no red, black, and green flag up to pay proper uh, respect to Marcus Garvey. I think one of the problems in the black community while we're at the bottom of the food chain is that a lot of us still don't want to recognize the fact that you're black. You has a person in the modern day, Earl, what color are you? They want to be everything else except being black. If you're black, you're black. So, you know, I just, I just think that that's a shame also. They, you know, in response to, you know, uh, they want to bring back corporate punishment, the, the question that I had to ask are is, is is a lot of the reason uh, because the fathers are not in the household. You know, a lot of ways, you know, they had to keep some, especially these males, males be a man figure, uh, that, that masculine male to keep some of these men in places. So I think that that could be some of the problems Um, Also, the lack of a father being around. So that's all I got to say. Peace.
0: All right. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate you calling. Hope to hear from you again soon. And just for uh, our listeners who may not have heard our first hour, we did um, a segment with the New York City based uh, writer Amir Akafaji talking about the fact that uh, uh, immigrants uh, mostly from Venezuela with the sprinkling of people from Colombia and elsewhere were making their way uh, to the United States through Mexico uh, to the Texas border and being put uh, on buses from Texas and I believe D.C. as well. And being a ship to New York where they're basically completely without any kind of assistance or relief. There are people there that uh, at some of these uh, uh, places, intake centers and shelters that don't speak Spanish, which is incredible to me if we're talking about New York City and how, um, uh, you know, a lot of them are basically faced with the choice of uh, staying in a shelter that could be dangerous or literally staying uh, on the street. And so, um, I mean, in terms of the licenses, I mean, I think in reality, as we were pointing out in the piece, the entire immigration system needs to be completely overhauled. It is inhumane on its face. And we should also remember that we don't lose anything because there's some resource that's given to uh, immigrant groups. The fact of the matter is, uh, there's more than enough uh, money and resources in this country to satisfy all of these uh, needs. But it's just the fact that because of the machinations of capitalism that uh, we're not able to get them. So that's really, the culprit that we're speaking to here. And I think we definitely have to bear that in mind. And what I wanted to uh, come back and uh, sort of touch back on what we were saying in terms of this corporal punishment issue, um, Christine, it just makes me think about how how putative and sort of retribution based so much of the consciousness is in the United States. And we often talk about this within the context of Policing and the courts and mass incarceration, where it's absolutely uh, a a big part of it, about how someone who gets uh, you know caught up in this system is irredeemable and is deserving of whatever happens to them, and 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 things like this, and how basically they're no longer entitled to their humanity for being caught up in this system. But I mean, it feels like that very sort of thinking and we see that culture playing out can happen in some places from people's earliest age. You know what I mean? And so I just feel like it sets a, a dangerous uh, a precedent in a way to have this a sort of thing be in schools and to, in, in a sense, almost have the state Taking responsibility for doling out this kind of punishment, and then uh, one part I meant to mention here in this uh, issue in, in Cassville, Missouri, is that supposedly these spankings will only come quote when other means of discipline have failed, which makes me curious about like what other uh, uh, forms of punishment or discipline are there even. And so, I mean, I'm basically just sort of uh, <laughs> just kind of dumping out just a lot of thoughts that are hitting me all at once on this, Christine. But, you know, my point really is, is that it just can't be healthy to subject kids to what is basically a a kind of a uh, uh, state-backed punishment in this way and then expect them to continue to operate as, you know, normal citizens in a sense. You know what I mean?
5: Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, Missouri is a a red state. And um, so, you know, it believes in the death penalty and, you know, corporal punishment and uh, very, you know, harsh, you know, laws and sentencing and all that for um, people who have been in prison. So for the law to still be... On the state that you know this type of corporal punishment is okay and that is, it could be accepted at any and all school districts, and then this particular district, you know, just decided to uh, to to revive you know this 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 form of, of discipline. And again, like you said, uh, when all other forms of discipline uh, have been taken, I'm not sure if they have um, a resource. Any type of restorative model, or any type of uh, like peer mediation, or what their steps are for, um, because in, in many ways, in in uh, discipline handbooks, there will be you know a step by step kind of guide to you know you send them to the office, you call the parents for this, you know whatever, what have you. Um, but also, you know, to the caller's point, you know, I just want to be clear about what Castle is, Southwest, you know, corner of Missouri near like um, Springfield and all that, is, very white. Um, it's the county seat of Barry County, so I'm going to say that it's probably relatively affluent. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm sure they, you know, probably do have some poverty. But you know, I really think that it is. I think it is maybe not um, absenteeism of, of fathers. I think that you know um, the way that we discipline children now, or, or the way that we think about discipline now, is far different from when I was growing up. I remember kids getting traveled in school. I remember their mm-hmm. twins their name were Andre and Anthony. They used to get paddled all the time in school and they were very naughty, but do they deserve to get paddled? Absolutely not. Um, but so, you know, this country has a long history of, you know, being mean and disrespecting, um, and disrespecting children. I think, you know, we just had a, a period of time where we were being very child centered and child focused and trying to, you know, have that more restorative process. And I think that, again, um, because of COVID, Um, I think that schools are very um, tired. I think teachers are exhausted, and and I think they're dealing with a lot of disciplinary issues and problems that maybe they didn't have pre-COVID because, you know, children being at home for that period of time or the disruption to the family or, um, you know, this is a part of Missouri where a lot of people um, die from covid so, you know, I, I, I really think this is a, a district who is probably experiencing an uptick in disciplinary issues and felt like this um, wrongly uh, was a was way that they wanted to deal with it. And again, because of where we are at in the country, um, we're definitely primed for this type of violence towards children.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I feel what you're saying in terms of, you know, this narrative we often hear about, you know, men in the homes or I guess, suppose in this case, men in schools and things like that. I mean, I actually think that that's still Um, a part of this broader uh, issue of um, the putative culture that we're discussing. I mean, this idea that, you know, somehow machismo is like a cure-all for disciplinary issues. I just don't see that as the case. I mean, the mere fact of a masculine presence isn't necessarily going to, uh, uh, you know, change uh, someone's behavior or assert that or anything like that. And I still think that that kind of thinking can, can lead us down to a pretty, um, uh, a dangerous path in a sense, because we are talking about children, and you touched on something else that that I think often goes undiscussed, Christine, because you know beyond the issue of corporal punishment, looking at education, I mean just looking at the state and status of children in this country and under this system, children are simply not valued um uh you know despite you know, uh, proclamations to uh, the contrary, and and I tend to think that children aren't valued for the same reason that elderly people aren't valued in this system and in this culture is because you're talking about two groups who are outside of um the uh, typical capitalist mode of labor exploitation because they're simply physically not able to do that. Uh, uh, now the children may at one point, but the elderly no longer, and so it's just I just feel like our entire sort of ethos and the way we think about children uh, will have to shift as we move forward because I mean I mean in all honesty I think we really have to view them as the human beings that they are uh, you know and not as objects to be acted upon but as people to uh, uh, be consulted and guided I mean obviously a child can't operate in the way that an adult can but uh, I think this whole issue of you know like uh, staying in a child's place or being being seen and not heard. I think that this is also a part of this kind of uh you know, to use an overused uh, word, uh, toxic uh, sort of way of uh, uh, social relations that we have in this country and under this capitalist system uh, that, again, I think I, I think can only really be a hindrance if what we're saying is that we want these young people to grow into functional, well-rounded adults. It just feels like the whole orientation around children will have to shift in a number of ways, education included, if uh, there's going to uh, be a real kind of difference, you know?
5: Uh, yeah, definitely I, I absolutely agree. I especially agree with the part about children not being able to uh, you know to be productive. Um, because in the society and the way that capitalism needed to be. And I've also just been, you know, really lately, oddly, just thinking about, you know, the, the white patriarchal um, system of supremacy and just how, you know, we always had this thing when I, um, at work, which was, you know, coop rolls downhill, right? And so in this system, you know, you have men who are, you know, considered to be at the top and especially a certain type of man. And then he has women and children under him. And then women have children under them. Them, and there's always a child who is smaller than the next And so it just kind of reinforces that hierarchical um, paradigm that we're that we're that we're living in of like power privilege and lording that over someone and children are just at the bottom and, and continue to be and they're not Seeing, um, you know, or as you said, are not given their full, you know, humanity. And, you know, even as, as a parent and someone who engages with children and mentors on a regular basis, you know, I, I still, you know, have to do, you know, like I'm the parent liaison to the key club at our high school now. And, when, you know, and sometimes, you know, as an adult, I have to sit back and think like, no, I have to be able to give these teenagers the autonomy to make the decisions on their own because they are 15 and and they will be making, you know, decisions in the future and they need to practice at it now. And so I do believe that we need a cultural revolution on, you know, how we um, how we view and, uh, and treat children in this country.
0: Definitely. Shout out to the by any means necessary chat. Uh, Gamondi said um, in schools that don't have corporal punishment probably still have a school resource officer to rough up some kids. I mean, I think that's definitely true. And that made me think immediately. Of this case that people may remember from 2015 in uh, South Carolina, where it was a viral video of this white police officer who uh, uh, grabbed a, a black girl student by the neck, flipped her backwards as she was sitting and then was dragging her, you know, through her across the floor and things like this. I mean, this. I mean, this is a masculine presence, right? But, I mean, obviously, it takes quite a bit more than that uh, if we want to have a healthy learning environment for our children. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and watch TDC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luquman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 2. Zero two five two one one three two zero. I am here. Christine Hendricks is here as we continue, and uh, shout out to, to Ricky Ryan in the by any means necessary chat, who says, "In all honesty, people are not really dealing with our children. You can see the difference when they are invested in and when they are not." I definitely think that's true. I definitely think that's true, and I can't help but feel that this is sort of part and parcel of a broader issue of this uh, excruciating. Individualism that is inherent to the, the the capitalist system, where we don't think about things like uh, raising and rearing uh, kids as a a collective effort from, a, from an institutional standpoint. Certainly there are communities that uh, perhaps sort of view uh, children in that way and I mean you know I know certainly in black America we hear all the time about you know back in the day when you know the neighbors would watch you and would even punish you if, if they uh, felt that that was necessary and was sort of basically given permission by your parents to to, to do so. But when we talk about that kind of village uh, mentality uh, if you will I mean that requires a kind of collective sentiment that uh, it is just not it can be hard to withstand uh, within this system, not impossible, but certainly not encouraged, given the broader institutional thrust of things. And another thing I wanted to ask about you, Christine, uh, another top line story in the news right now is, you know, the uh, recent uh, raid on uh, Donald Trump's estate in Mar-a-Lago, the affidavit uh, that had been revealed and uh, uh, the, the claims of presence of, you know, uh, documents at different levels of confidentiality and secrecy and things like that. And particularly when we're talking about the broader political uh, moment that we're in and the calculus that I think different elements within these ruling class parties are making. I'm just wondering how you're sort of seeing how this piece is unfolding.
5: Oh wow! I mean, I, I just feel like one, it feels like it's very slowly unfolding, um, and two, also, I feel like we um, are getting information that we all or many of us were pretty clear on or had very good suspicion about, and now we're just getting the evidence, uh, you know, through um, you know the FBI investigation. Um, but I think what's really concerning, and you know, one of the Um, one of the things we don't think about, um, in elections is, you know, some of the judges that, um, Donald Trump has put on the court and we have the one who is allowing for, um, or who is open to like a special master to like oversee the documents that the FBI has already taken out of Mar-a-Lago Mar-a-Lago. And basically that just means that um, it's going to slow down um, the investigation and the availability of documents to be used um, in that investigation. And so, you know, again, it's, it's just that, that, that low boil that we have and, you know, that, that impending fear that, um, he is not going to be, you know, indicted and actually held accountable for his obvious crimes, and and, and I think that that that's very concerning because you know this was an attempted coup that uh, was mismanaged and misplaced and went wrong. However, um, someone who is sharper, wiser, more politically astute could pull it off in the future, or could have pulled it, pulled off what Donald Trump had tried to pull off. And so I, I, I'm just um, I'm. Trying to stay optimistic, but um, I'm also very cynical about whether or not um, we will, you know, get the results that that we deserve, that really Donald Trump deserves, which is to be indicted and put in jail.
0: Yeah, you know, I've had a similar thought, uh, particularly in thinking uh, about what 2024 could look like. Now, of course, that's two years away. There's still a a good bit of time. But I think the number one thing, well, (laughs) there's two things that I'm under, really. And we spoke to one of them earlier in terms of like who could the Democrats possibly put up in 2024? Because, I mean, I put up Joe Biden again just Seems like a recipe for defeat. But I also wonder whether on the Republican side, if Donald Trump will be the front runner or someone of a Trump type that will be that kind of sharper, more shrewd, um, uh, less boorish, perhaps slightly more polished version of it and in being that uh, uh, more dangerous in a sense and so I mean that, that that's definitely an aspect of things that uh, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about as well I mean uh, DeSantis down in Florida certainly seems to be making a play I don't know how far he will get I mean he definitely seems intent on um, just instituting every possible uh, right wing reactionary measure that he possibly can uh, on every level but I mean even still the way it will play out I think will be quite the ride. And as ever, Christine, there are these overarching class issues that uh, are undergirding so much Uh, Of what we're seeing right now, even if that aspect goes unsaid Uh, here recently, uh, there was a report compiled by PYMTS and the Lending Club. They published an analysis that said that last month, 59 percent of U.S. consumers were living paycheck to paycheck with many unable to afford an emergency expense of four hundred dollars. And I feel like we've heard this sort of thing in years past about how so many people in this country um, simply do not have the extra money on hand in the case of an emergency. And should they have to actually put up this four hundred dollars or anything uh, perhaps beyond that? I mean, it could have just a serious negative impact on their overall living situation because people's finances at this point are just so precarious because of a number of reasons, some of which we've laid out in our conversation here today. And, you know, it still sticks out to me when they frame this as, you know, like U.S. consumers as opposed to some other formulation. I'm just sort of curious about why the focus on that specifically because, and I think we said this on the show earlier this week, like the issue is not that people aren't able to, you know, just buy whatever random goods and services, but we're talking about like basic things like food and housing and And uh, utilities and medical bills and, you know, cell phone bills and things that people really actually need um, to operate. And so it just seems, Christine, that all the time we're witnessing the uh, deepening, deterioration, and I think, frankly, immiseration of broad swaths of poor and working people in the United States with little to no response. From those that are in leadership who seem um, intent to focus on just about everything else. And, you know, it, it can create a feeling and a sentiment amongst people like things are hopeless and morale can be low and things can be uh, 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 desperate and certainly uh, they have a reason to, to feel that way. But I think that this is really a big part of what organizers and movement people can really do in terms of clarifying, number one, why this is happening because it's, I think personally that it's actually not that clear why so many of these things are unfolding the way that they are precisely because there's, I think, a lack of perhaps general understanding about the capitalist system because our indoctrination and propagandization under this system doesn't make this clear. It obscures all of that for very good reason. Of course, all out of an attempt to protect the system itself. So not only do we need to like clarify what's happening and what and who are the real culprits for this deterioration of our condition, we then have to have people understand that they don't just have to sit back and take it. You know what I mean? That that they can actually fight back. They can be active in this struggle for their lives. And that indeed, historically, that is precisely what our class has done. And so it's one of those interesting sort of uh, moments where things for a lot of people on a material basis are getting worse. But with that, I think, comes a certain kind of opportunity to organize the kind of effort that can fight to improve the conditions that those in power are refusing to at this point. But how do you see it?
2: Uh,
5: yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. And, you know, when I really think about it, um, you know, I think about, you know, that the thing where, you know, there people say, you know, Harriet would have freed a thousand more slaves if they would have known that they were slaves. And I think that even though people are living under dire economic um, situations and may have that economic stress, a lot of people do not actually see themselves, even if they answered yes to, you know, I can't. You know, spend you know four hundred dollars would you know cripple me. A lot of people still do not see themselves as being you know part of the working poor, and so I think that you know really people understanding you know that you know ten percent of you know people are you know are really making even like six figures you know and then. Let's not even talk about the one percent, and and with you know the rapid rate of inflation, you know people who you know were making decent salaries, you know a couple of years ago, aren't able to afford the same amount of things now. And so, um, I just really think that the first is that educational piece is really you know um, giving people that class consciousness that they need, and to understand that you know um, even if you're even slightly higher higher up on the the food chain, and the grand scheme of things, we're all still in the same boat. And so, you know, we really do need to to, to organize around um, our class and, and understanding that the elite, including those who are in positions of power, do not always have our uh, best interests at heart, nor do they even really understand the root of the real struggle because it's not a struggle that they're currently experiencing. And so I think that, you know, the the root of our, our organization really has to start with that um with with educating the masses. And I think the shows like this do an excellent job of of starting that.
0: Yeah. uh, I appreciate you saying that, Christine. And, you know, you said a lot and hit on what I think is one of the most important points. And that is the importance of uh, developing Class consciousness and a working class consciousness, I think, specifically because, you know, the Joe Biden's of the world, the the Donald Trump's of the world, the the Kamala Harris's, the Mike Pence's, the the Lindsey Graham's and, and, and and the Mitch McConnell's and all these types of people, that whole class is highly class conscious, highly. They are acutely aware of what their class interests are. Indeed, they could not have risen to that level in U.S. politics if they didn't have that kind of awareness. You know what I mean? And so not only are they highly class conscious, they are also highly organized and highly centralized, which is why they are so well-equipped to make their will manifest. And to carry through the things that they want to get done to their benefit and to our detriment. And this is why I always say that we have to be able as a class to meet that level of organization with organization, not with disorganization it can't be this uh, uh, this thing that people like, uh, uh, what do they call it, a, a diversity of tactics I mean all that means is that everybody's just kind of doing their own thing, doing what they want to do, there's no sort of uh, a oneness or clarity or coordination of messaging or strategies or goal or things like that we're all just going to show up and do what we want and somehow in doing that uh, a disorganized thing, I guess make revolution there has never been uh, a a disorganized revolution anywhere uh, on this earth, because a a revolution uh, by its very nature is something that inflicts a certain kind of change. Now the character of revolution is something that perhaps we could discuss, but even still, you know what I mean? And so uh, this is why this very kind of public education that you're speaking to Christine is so crucially important. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we're having this conversation right on the tail end of Black August, where study is such an important aspect of that spirit. Fast, study, train, fight. And I appreciate that so much because, you know, and I don't know if it's like this, uh, uh, you know, in other countries, but I know under American capitalism, there's this completely arbitrary separation of uh, manual labor and intellectual labor and people who are seen as being intellectually strong are perceived as not being of much use from a manual standpoint. And then people who are stronger or tend to be strong in a manual sense are thought to be less intelligent or to have less intellectual capacity. But this is you know, not only a reductive way about thinking about human beings. It is also something that I think, Constricts and constrains our potential as people. Because, you know, the message there is that, well, you can only be one thing, you can only be strong or developed in one way, and that you you know, should not or could not or cannot uh, seek to be more developed in, you know, whatever way you see fit or seems necessary or that which the struggle requires. And so I think uh, this is what Kwame Torre means when, you know, he was fond of telling us that capitalism doesn't only seek to exploit your labor. It also wants to confound your thinking. And so uh, the issue of consciousness then is so, so, so important. And, you know, in our last couple of minutes here, Christine. I'm certainly, you know, interested in any response that you have to that and how we actually have uh, to better ourselves and to become developed in a number of ways if we're going to overturn uh, the most powerful country that I think the world has seen
5: yeah I mean I, again it just says all around that education piece and continuing you know each one teach one and continuing to uh, you know really talk to people about the the ill effects of capitalism and how it's you know destroying not just our lives but the capacity as a planet to even house human beings and animals, bugs, whatever. So, you know, I, and I, I think, you know, just to be consistent and, and, and constant about it and, and, to, and to, to bring forward facts without too much hysteria, because at the end of the day, again, um, this is about the survival of not just our individual lives, but the survival of our planet. And um, I think that to continue to educate people on that and to, you know, to softly let them, you know, softly let them down about their capitalist propaganda is the only, is the only way to, um, to get them out of that fog.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, we have to be clear, my friends, that the struggle for revolution in this country is quite literally a struggle to save humanity. I'm not over exaggerating. I'm not overstating it. When we look at all the different pressing issues that face this country and this earth quite literally in an existential sense if something drastic is not done then the ruling class will be successful in pushing us into oblivion and as such we must fight but we're gonna leave it there for today here on by any means necessary on radio Sputnik in washington dc I want to thank christine hedrick so much for joining us today we'll be back tomorrow with all new episodes so as always we'll see you next time peace
2: by any means necessary